welcome to another edition of Look Who's Talking, sparkling and witty topical debate and discussion all focused upon the life of Christchurch New Maldon. I'm Anna Larkin and here on the show this month I have regulars Stephen Kurt Hello. and Nathan Larkin. Hey there. Plus our special guest for this month, Ruth Henson. Hello. In this month's show, we've got quite a variety of subjects that we'll be looking at. We'll be talking about the 11 o'clock service here at Christchurch and its particular value and characteristics. And as usual, we'll be having a preview of the preaching programme and what's coming up in all three of our services over June. But in addition, we'll be talking about collecting for Christian aid and all of the many issues that throws up before we then branch out to talk about the role of Christian school teachers. And as the summer gets fully underway, the value of holidays and how we can go about getting the most from them. So an eclectic mix this month, as they say. But let's start off by talking about the 11 o'clock service. It's the second of our three Sunday services, and I think it's fair to say that it's a lot quieter than 9.30 and and even 6.30, and it has a good number of people coming who have been churchgoers for quite a while. Um, So Stephen, if I come to you first, what do you see as distinctive and perhaps special about the 11 o'clock service? Well, the 11 o'clock service in the form that we've got it goes back to November 2007, And what 11 o'clock's really uh, seeking to do is to provide a service that's quieter, a bit more formal, but not excessively traditional. Uh, We don't want it to be, you know, excessively traditional service, but it, I suppose it's liturgical, uh, meaning that sort of um, fixed forms of worship from common worship, the Anglican Church's um, uh, service book, um, are used at it, and it's Holy Communion on the first Sunday and the third Sunday, morning prayer on the second, fourth, and where it occurs, the fifth. And it's really a sort of, um, I suppose, a sort of traditionalish sort of evangelical service, really. Um, the sermons, uh, certainly in their form, are the sort of sermons that people who've come to evangelical churches have got used to, tend to uh, centre on going through biblical books. But I try and make the content of those sermons very challenging and and, and sort of radical, uh, even if the form is one that most people are familiar with and therefore hopefully fairly comfortable uh, with. Um, and 11 o'clock has, I suppose it's got around about 100 people coming to it regularly. Oh, really? Yeah, of which we get around about 75 to 80 each week. Okay. So it's around about 100 to 120 people who are on the books of it, mm. some of whom we don't see sort of every week. But by and large, they are people who are used to coming to church every week. By and large, they're people who've been coming to church for quite a, a significant amount of time. So a lot of people there have been churchgoers ever since they were children. But there are some significant exceptions to that. And um, one of the interesting things about the growth at the 11 o'clock service is, I think it's probably true to say that of the three services, that's the one where we attract more people who aren't British. Okay. Um, two, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, a number Do you have of any Koreans. Idea why that might be? Not well. Uh, not necessarily. I think maybe the sort of slightly more formal feel yeah. to it, perhaps, um, is a little more. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Are there okay. many families who come with children? No. Um, we have one or two people who come with children. And there, you know, we don't have any uh, Sunday schools or anything like that. I mean, I'd love to see 11 o'clock develop so that at some stage people who want a sort of quieter, more formal service could come and there could be children's stuff available as Mm. well. But we're quite a long way away from being able to Mm. provide that, really. So, um, yeah, that's the 11 o'clock service. And um, 
I think, um, you know, it, it fulfills a very important need. And as I say, it is good that it is a service that isn't just um, full of people uh, getting less and less as people move on, you know, move away or die. Uh, but actually, we, we, we are replenishing it. Mm. Um, not spectacularly, but there is growth there, which is encouraging. Mm. So, um, Ruth, if I come to you next, um, you regularly attend the 11 o'clock service as well as the 6.30 service, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So I presume if you if you keep going back, you must enjoy both services, but it would probably be fair to say that the services are quite different in style. So what are the things that you, that you like about, well, we're talking about the 11 o'clock service at the moment. So what does the 11 o'clock service give you that the 6.30 service doesn't? Well, I have to say there's lots that I appreciate about the 11 o'clock service. Um, I love the opportunity to sing the great old hymns, mm. have yep. a really good sing of those. Um, I appreciate the liturgy as well, uh, to, have go, to go to a service where there is that formal structure. Yeah. But if I had to pick the two things that I appreciate the most, uh, then I would say it's the people. Um, mm. I've grown, as, as you know, I think, uh, I've grown up coming to Christchurch. What my age life. were you? Were you? Did you come from naught then? Yeah, from the womb. <laughs> <laughs> Just couldn't get away. <laughs> no escape. Because yeah, um. your mum has been coming to Christchurch longer than anyone else, hasn't That's she? Right, she's, yes. she's not the oldest member, I hasten no. to add, uh, but she is the one who's been coming longest, longest standing, because she yeah. goes back to Mr Bartle's time, Absolutely. doesn't she? Oh, yes. In the yeah. Uh, yeah, the um, 50s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, probably 40s, I think. Oh, right. Yeah, that's Arthur Habersham, isn't okay. it? Anyway, we're digressing into history. <laughs> yeah. into history. Oh, no, I better not say that. Um, uh, so, no, the people at the 11 o'clock I really appreciate yeah. because they're people I've grown up knowing. They're, fa mm. they're family friends, mm. you know, people I've known all my life. And um, and I love to see them and catch up with them, find out how they are, uh, but also to learn from them. They've, mm. they've um, lived uh, very full and varied lives and they have such wisdom mm. that they can share whatever you're going through then they have some experience that they can bring to that and mm. and really help you so I really value that very much and then also the sermons as um, Stephen's alluded to I love the fact that there's just a bit more time at the 11 o'clock service mm. there the sermons are a bit longer they're able to go into a bit more depth and really wrestle with whatever the topic or the passage uh, is getting at and right. I really value that and find that really helpful. Mm. Yeah, they tend to be uh, sort of 20 to 25 minutes, don't they? Um, I mean, one of the interesting sort of um, tensions we've got at um, 11 o'clock is that if you have communion and you have a sort of evangelical sermon of that type and you have lay-led prayers, it actually can make for quite a long service, yeah. can't it? Um, so sometimes it probably is a little bit on the long side. And, you you know, uh, if you have the peace at communion as well, that take. So mm. it, it's an interesting service to sort of try and run because uh, it, it, it's almost sort of trying to do too many things sometimes. But it seems to be a formula that people... People, saying, people like I mean, and appreciate. Twenty-five minutes isn't isn't huge compared to you know we were just uh, yeah. talking to I think of some of Anna's cousins who both preach in different churches and yeah. they were kind of debating the merits of a short sermon at thirty minutes you know yeah <laughs> yeah so they I both think regularly these days, preach for fifty minutes yeah I think these I days I know it does take uncomfortable well I, I know it I know it does take place still today but by and large I think it's it's becoming a lot less common because I think people are surrounded by so many forms of communication that are far more instant and far more visual so I think there's a lot more challenges so even you know even amongst our people who would have been at Christchurch and had 40 minute sermons which there were in the not too distant past at Christchurch those same people quite often will say they like 20 minutes or 22 at the most mm. you know um, because of concentration I mm. tend to think if you can't say it in 20 to 25 minutes 
then probably it can't be said. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think when I've sat through longer sermons, I think I only ever remember about 20 or 25 minutes worth of yeah. what was said. Yeah. Well, when I've gone to churches where they have got 40-minute sermons, and I haven't often done this, I find there's a style which is quite a sort of repetitive, almost lyrical style, where you say the points and you repeat them again. And, you know, it's, and I'm not convinced that much is really gained. I'm not sure there's much more content in it, mm. often mm. just just more repetition, I, I think. think. The reason it came up with in discussion with uh, the, the family members was they'd actually been uh, tweeting Tim Keller and right. um, I think hoping for some backup because someone in their church had said, look, I can't sit through your sermons, they're too long. And he, he was he, doing an online preaching yeah. Q&A session. So right. he, he, he sent this tweet off to Tim Keller expecting backup and actually I think he was he was responded to by, if you can't say it in 25 minutes, it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and it was favourited about 700 times, I think. <laughs> Just to rub it in. Yeah. And we've done some pretty ambitious things at 11 in that we um, went through Revelation and mm. we spent a week uh, on each chapter. So we did 22 weeks yeah, on Revelation. Yeah, it's quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah, it was split up from, you know, by Christmas and Easter and a few um, you know, places where we had gaps. Um, but that was one of the most significant sermon series we did at 11 o'clock, mm. where people uh, who were fairly familiar with lots of other parts, particularly the New Testament, were fairly unfamiliar with Revelation. And it made an impact because it's got a very relevant message, particularly to people who are older and people who will struggle with, well, if Jesus has won the victory, uh, then why is the world seemingly getting worse and worse and worse? Yeah. And Revelation addresses that so well that it turned out to be very significant pastorally, that long focus we did on Revelation. Mm. But people were very sort of up for it. Mm. Now, I want to try and be delicate about how I ask this next question, because we've, um, we've got quite a large audience um, at 11 o'clock um, I know a lot of them like to borrow the CDs and listen to Look Who's Talking. But uh, I think it would be fair to say that the average age of the 11 o'clock service <laughs> is, uh, is quite a bit older than the average age at, at 9.30 and even at 6.30. Yep. And while I know that there, there are a number of people who attend, like Ruth, who attend Ruth's more Ruth's the youngest than member, one. I'm the second, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clinging on to that title. <laughs> um, is there a danger of a sort of age segregation between mm. between the two services the way they're packaged and I know yeah. the 930 service is very deliberately much more family friendly and as we've already said there isn't really any facility for childcare at 11 o'clock so mm. that might be one reason that it happens but do you think this is a danger and if so what could be done about it yeah there's definitely the danger of a sort of age apartheid um, but the thing is that what 9.30 and 11 o'clock are trying to do is to supply on a regular basis church that's most accessible for those people's needs who come. And uh, one of the reasons we can do 9.30 in the way we can and do it fairly radically in a sort of fairly radically child-friendly and young parent-friendly way is because we've got the 11 o'clock service. If we were trying to do one Sunday morning service and try to meet everyone's needs altogether, I think we'd fail. And I think the old 1045 service struggled uh, because of that. I think it was very difficult to meet different needs. So I think it is the way to go. And I think the way that we respond to the danger of an age apartheid or having uh, separate churches rather than being one church is the unity services are very, very important. Mm. And, um, you know, we also have refreshments that people can come to 11 o'clock service early and meet people who are at 9.30. And a certain amount of fraternisation goes on during that time. But I think it's the unity services that take place. Christmas yeah. Day, Easter Day, Harvest. We've got another unity service coming up on the 12th of July. 
And I always try to emphasize how vital those times are because we do want to be one church. Um, and there's social events, you know, that, that should be accessible to we get a big mix really. at the bowling don't yeah. we yeah absolutely and i think it's important to, to kind of drive home that these you know church isn't just what we do on the sunday in yep. a service you know and that even when we meet separately there's plenty of opportunities to to be church together yeah things like the film night is mm. um popular with uh, members of the 11 o'clock service and six thirty and a few nine thirty as well mm. um but we've always got to be working on it and, um, you know, it wasn't long ago that we had a sermons at, across all of our services on how to relate to the other services. So sermons at 11 o'clock and how to relate to 9.30 and 11 o'clock and understand what those services were doing. Mm. And the same happened at the other services as well. So it is a challenge um, and uh, it's something we've got to keep working at. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to move on now and have a look at the preaching programme for June. Um, so as we've already said, we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit at each of the services. And in the 9.30 service, uh, there'll be a series on the different marks of a spirit-filled church. So this morning, Carolyn spoke on the, the power to heal, but we've also got coming up the power to stand firm. Um, and the power to share. And we've got a special guest appearance, Gordon Kurt, coming on Father's Day. Oh, yeah. Well, my mum came on Mothering Sunday and she got a poster outside the church. She and did. so my dad, you know, I think felt a bit put very out. Jealous. Well, he preached at 11, but he didn't get a picture on the poster. Yeah, <laughs> so now we've right, got, really, courtesy really. of Nathan, a great poster outside the church with my In dad's. Fact, completely accidentally, but I think his head's almost twice as big on it uh, as your <laughs> mum's was. I, I, yeah, so it, there we go. That'll that'll be make up for it. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> That wasn't the intention at all. It was just a graphic design choice. Um, and then at 11 o'clock coming up, we've got um, a sermon series on what the Holy Spirit brings. Uh, so all sorts of different things. Katie Loughlin speaking this morning on um, the Holy Spirit bringing meeting of the law's requirements. Um, but we've got a few other different things coming up. And then at the 6.30 service, um, we are starting a series this evening on finding our spiritual gifts um, and there is about a list of about, it looks like about 500 different things <laughs> that Stephen has identified. Yeah, well, it's all the gifts that Paul uh, put in. In the New Testament, Paul uh, has four lists which contain different varied spiritual gifts. There are a couple in 1 Corinthians 12, one in Romans 12, and another in Ephesians 4. And so what I've tried to do at 6.30 is to group together the gifts that perhaps belong sort of together so the sort of bringing god's word type gifts um the bringing god's future into the present type gifts practical gifts and so on um and it's part of trying to encourage us at the 630 service to really think about what gifts god has given members of the congregation yeah and to encourage them to use them because you know one of the things we always need to emphasize is that god gives every christian uh, spiritual gifts and he wants us to use them mm. and uh, sometimes we can uh, slip into thinking well it's the clergy who are the sort of people who have the ministry and other people may support them in their ministry um, but basically they're not ministers and that's not what the new testament teaches it says mm. that we're all I called think it's to that ministry. using it focus as well that's um quite interesting because i've been to a lot of uh things in churches i've been in the past and where the, the real emphasis is on discover your gift what is your gift or identify these gifts and very little on right okay use it right <laughs> um, yeah and, and i think that's that's something that i really hope comes across is that we are all in this together we all have gifts we should all be using it not just um absolutely not necessarily just in church you know it may be largely um in non-church life yeah but certainly we want to yeah encourage everyone to sort of feel empowered 
Um, and sometimes people can be quite surprised when uh, their gifts are identified by other people. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and quite often that's the way I think that the Holy Spirit speaks to people. It's other people saying, look, I really think, I mean, you know, you over this, Anna, you were very reluctant to take on the chairing of uh, Look Who's Talking, I weren't was, you? I was, yeah. And now you're loving it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mum had a similar experience with... Um, sometimes people are worried to to think of of what they do or who they are as as being a spiritual mm. gift and um yeah mum has always been a big kind of card buyer and writer and uh, i think she kept the local christian bookstore in mm. business for longer than it should have been in, in, in our hometown she made it viable but um so many people i speak to have had mum send them a card with a little message just exactly at the time they need saying the thing they needed to hear at that right time and and i think for mum I, I I always thought she thought of as, as a gift or as, as certainly a ministry and, mm. and to her it was just the thing that you do you know yeah and and for me to say to you no mom that's a spiritual gift that yep. you have of encouragement and of yep. uh, you know and and wisdom and discernment and yep. you know you know and I think it was quite a mm. a, a moment when she realized ah that's something but it's obviously it's really good when people are getting on and doing it anyway but sometimes when people do receive that affirmation that's a gift they can sometimes then see ways in which they can develop it further mm. and or apply it in other ways yeah. and so so it can be quite significant when someone recognizes that they've you know been gifted uh, a certain ability by the holy spirit because they can then sort of think a little bit more about it strategically in some ways Mm. I think it's really great that people get encouraged with their spiritual gifts. I think there's two particular reasons. Uh, sometimes it could be because you know you're a bit good at something, but you see other people doing it and you think, well, I'm never going to be as good as them, mm. so yeah. I'm just going to yeah. keep it under wraps. Mm. And actually with the right encouragement and support, you can build on that and, yep. and become really good at it. Mm. Um, and then uh, also sometimes you've got, you think you've got sorted what your gift is. So I remember I thought that my gift that I could use at church was singing, and that mm. was the, really the only thing that I used to do and be involved in the music, and that was great and people appreciated mm. that but then when I was encouraged to think about preaching and mm. leading services then um, uh, I was like well no way that, that's not, not something <laughs> I could possibly do and, Ruth um, was the first preacher I ever heard at Christchurch because really? when I came for interview in 2002 something like November 2002 to be curate you know I came as curate the following year but I came to one of the old family services and Ruth was preaching so Ruth was the very first preacher I ever heard at Christchurch oh well done Ruth you obviously like what he heard I did I thought I've <laughs> got to come to this church I didn't do enough to put him off <laughs> I have a friend who um, doesn't attend this church, I should say this up front, who uses it as an excuse uh, the wrong way round. So um, often when he's asked to do things, when he's asked to help out, say with clearing up after something, he would say, not always in a tongue-in-cheek way, oh no, that's not my gifting. So right. what have you got to say about that? Do you think <laughs> that you that you um, should only be expected to do the things yes, that, that you have gift, got so. a sort of special spiritual no, gift for? Yeah. Or do you think everybody's expected to yeah, muck the poor in? one guy who's got we, a gift of service just yeah, we can't, just, we can't just leave one person clearing up because they happen to be lumbered with the worst spiritual gift of no good I, with think, a Hoover. I think there are very definitely things that we should all chip in whether they're a gift or not yeah um and it can be sometimes that when we uh when we do that when we do things because they need to be done uh that we discover actually gifts that are there that we didn't realize mm. we possessed um so i think yeah it's very important that people don't just say i mean you don't want to force people into doing stuff all the time that is definitely not them that will be counterproductive for anyone but i think actually a mark of the maturity of a church is when people are doing things and turning up to things sometimes that aren't particularly them 
but they're coming because they can see the the common good that's coming from mm. those and things. I think that really. actually links to the the first thing we talked about the, with that risk of church becoming segregated. I think there's things that we as as a staff team can do to try to combat yeah. that. But the number one thing that that we can do is have people come to things that isn't just their thing you yep. know i said you know that there's the social events you know maybe bowling isn't i i to be honest i can't stand bowling but really we go bowling once a year once with a church year. we hate bowling we'd never be found don't, don't to bowl say that on look who's talking no, no, but I, I, <laughs> no, we go because it's a nice it's a nice thing to do as just a church right. family but we never go just the two of us right. and yep. i think it's too easy to think a church is a kind of pick and mix i'll go to yep. this and i'll go to that and, and i think that it's when people come together to do all sorts of things and, and also just to support other people who do enjoy a certain thing or whatever that you can start to see um family Absolutely. and community and that together. is another weakness of having the three services potentially 9 30 11 and 6 30 that we can if we're not careful encourage a sort of menu type culture yeah. where people think oh i fancy coming to this so that's not for me and we want to sort of somehow overcome the tension between tailoring stuff to people in a way that will suit their needs most but at the same time, encouraging people not to just be imprisoned by that, to actually come mm. along to stuff mm. that's not necessarily their their cup of tea because they come to support others or because they recognise that it's really healthy for building up the church. Mm. Mm. And I think these gifts can be used not just in things that are specifically to do with, you know, the very obvious like church services mm. and things like that. And uh, a great example yesterday with Craig and Louise's wedding yep. um, mm. and all sorts of great occasion, wasn't to help it? make that yeah, such. It was yeah. really special day. Um, but I'm thinking particularly at the moment of Tom and Helen, who yep. did all of the catering for it. Yep. They arranged, they coordinated all the food. And actually, there are we've got lots of people who are fantastic at cooking and baking, mm. and um, and lots of lots of people agreed to bring along a different dish for the yep. reception. Um, but I thought Tom and Helen did a brilliant job of yep. coordinating all of it, making sure that everything yeah. was where it needed to be, and that we had the right sort of mix. You know, sometimes bringing share lunches, there's a danger you can get like 50 pasta salads yep. and nothing. <laughs> Else. Yep. Um, but it, it was just absolutely fantastic, I thought. And that's mm. a great example of, uh, you know, Craig and Louise are important members of the church family. Yep. And it's lovely that they got married here at Christchurch. Yep. But their wedding wasn't specifically a church event in the same way that a Sunday service mm. is. Mm. Um, and yet all of all of these different spiritual gifts were used yeah. um, to make that a really special Absolutely. And, and Tom and Helen Collins are just one example of... I think what happens when you get people who they spot a need or an opportunity and then they throw themselves into it. So not long yeah. ago, Tom came to me and said, uh, should we do a meal for the home group leaders? I'm happy to cook this, do all the work, you know, <laughs> which was just fantastic. And that's a really fantastic gift when people not only are good at catering or good at organising things, but actually have that little bit of vision for the way something mm. could be. They um, also did the marriage course, didn't they? Absolutely. Uh, they, they it's very, very similar. People coming and they, they did the meal yeah, for that. Very, very similar where they uh, identified it would be good to have a day for sort of marriage enrichment. And it's, it's wonderful as a vicar when this happens, when people come to you and say, or oh, a person comes to you and says, uh, look, you know, I've got this idea. Is this okay? Um, and which virtually <laughs> always the answer is, yes, fantastic. Yeah. Go and for I, it. I think we are. You know, I think hopefully we are the kind of church that, does say great let's go for it you know i yep. think we we try things we take risks and we're willing to get behind people's ideas so you yep. know, if any of you are out there and you've had something burning away do uh, absolutely i see a crucial part of the job as vicar um and i'm going to be speaking about this this evening in a couple of hours time 
is uh, equipping the saints for ministry. That's yeah. what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. And being a vicar uh, is about many things, but it's partly about encouraging every member of the congregation to identify the gifts that God has given them and then give them maximum encouragement and opportunity to use them. And quite often uh, what people need in order to exercise their gifts is lots of feedback, lots of affirmation. It doesn't mean they're insecure. It just means that they're stepping out of the boat a little bit in terms of faith. Mm. And they need uh, lots of encouragement to then really go for it. And and all of us need that, actually. I don't know anyone who doesn't mm. need encouragement. Well, we'll move on now and speak about something uh, that I have never done because <laughs> it's definitely not my gifting, but that's not an excuse. And one, one day I will sign up and I'll do it, um, which is collecting for Christian aid. But Stephen and Ruth, I know both of you have done this and um, and have done it for years, I think. Um, so uh, it always happens in May. Uh, that's when Christian Aid Week is. And lots of very, very brave people, much braver than me, will go door to door asking for money uh, for Christian Aid. Um, Becky Mills is our Christian Aid coordinator here. And this year, collectors from Christchurch managed to raise about £4,000 for Christian Aid, Yeah, which I had is no idea it was that amount. Um, yeah, it's a staggering it's amount, really, just going from door to door asking for yeah. money to, to come up with such a massive total so it's obviously really really worthwhile and obviously lots of people are nice and do say yes and hand over money rather than <laughs> shout, shouting at you or slamming the door in your face either that is just one guy that's very generous <laughs> <laughs> yes it could be that yeah or people saying they've gone door to door and just putting in a few hundred quid of their I own I think there money. are one or two people <laughs> who do do that who, who collect for a certain moment do just we give have a donation like a competition instead. is there a leaderboard so you can get them bring yeah, the yeah I think Ruth or? wins it most years don't you <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think I came second last year. <laughs> oh, wow. Hoping I've come back to first this year. I haven't heard the, the overall oh, top. Right. Yeah. We'll, have to, we'll have to see. But so, Ruth, what what is it like? It seems to me like something that would be really quite daunting. Um, how do you find it? Well, I do feel slightly fraudulent here because I'm in a very privileged position. Um, I served my time. I used to collect in other roads. I collected with my mum in Linkside and Auric Avenue and then on my own in People Orch in Linkside Orchard are quite hard up. You wouldn't have got much there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then I did Orchard Avenue, which... Um, oh, did you? Stephen, uh, did you do Orchard now. before? I did, I've had yes. Orchard for 11 years. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to start mm. a turf war here. <laughs> <laughs> but for about, I think it's 12 or 13 years, I've been collecting in Rosebury Avenue, and it's it's not difficult because okay. there's uh, many families there, many people there who have a connection with Christchurch. Yeah. And also because I um, grew up living in Rosebury Avenue, it's... And there's lots of people who've lived there, you know, 40, 50 years. Mm. Um, it's people I've known all my life. And so basically I just knock on the door and we have a lovely chat. And they've usually got the envelope ready for me and they just happily hand it oh, over. that's nice. So that, that wouldn't necessarily be the case, did it? I mean, because calling on your neighbours and asking for money is not necessarily easy, is it? So when you first started doing it, was it a nervy thing, you know, calling on people that you'd known for 20 years and saying, give us your dosh? Not really, no, because they're, they're such a lovely bunch of people. Right, it's such yeah. a lovely community. I mean, you've lived there, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. such a lovely community in Rosebury Avenue that actually everyone's so lovely. They don't, yeah. um, they don't mind at all. Uh, I do have a slight taste of what it's like to knock on sort of unfamiliar people's doors when, you know, there's new people who move in who don't know me from Adam and mm. I have to knock on the door and say, um, have you considered giving to Christian Aid and have a little summary ready of what Christian Aid is in case they they don't know and then sometimes you do get the no I'm not interested but I, I don't know if it's just the magic of Rosebury Avenue rubs off on them <laughs> the majority of them do seem willing to give so I mean I, I can imagine the um the kind of a lot of people just disinterested or no thanks close the door but do you get much sort of active 
what is Christian here, kind of curiosity, but skepticism? No, uh, I, I, I mean, I must admit, it would be great to get a question about what is Christian Aid, what does it do? I, f I find that's the question I've never got. In 11 years of collecting in Orchard, what I generally get is people go, oh, yeah, okay, oh, oh, um, mm, and they go off and get some coppers and shove it in there. But actually, since I started wearing my dog collar, I get loads more. <laughs> so about four years ago, when I started doing it 11 years ago, I thought, no, I must just do it. I must do this as a Christian, not as a clergyman. And that was all part of my rationale. Do you I have to have like small print that says the church doesn't believe in indulgences? <laughs> <laughs> but about four years ago, I thought, I'm not getting much money. And I was way down on leaderboard, you know, behind Ruth and others. <laughs> so I thought, I've got to up my game. Sounds like so fantasy football. It, it is. <laughs> so I started um, wearing my dog collar. And it is embarrassing how much difference it made. And well, can I, we all borrow your shirts? Well, we could. <laughs> yeah. I, I could loan them out. Um, the last time I lent out um, clerical shirts and dog collars was when Helen Hancock left. Um, and uh, we had a sort of party where we, I, I dressed everyone up as women vicars. So I lent <laughs> clerical shirts and collars. And Including big, big the guys? Or <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but basically, yeah, um, what I find is that um, people can be quite generous. Um, but I think there's a... Um, there are some who look at you as though you're mad and what on earth what on earth are you asking me well why should I um, and uh, so you have to persevere a bit and um, people can look embarrassed or um, but actually you know £4,000 quite surprised me actually yeah. and yeah, I thought actually I didn't realise it was I thought before I heard that sum I don't think I'd heard the, the total in other years I thought well maybe we're doing this mainly for symbolic importance mm. and to flag up Christian aid rather than but, a, but no, actually apparently, I mean I, I can't remember the figure but I was surprised when I heard what percentage of Christian aid's income in a year yeah. comes during that week from yeah. door to door collection yeah. it's, it's I find it quite hard point. when people have got two cars in the drive you know and they've got a really big posh house and when they say, oh, no, sorry, you know, I do feel like having a bit of a tussle with them and saying, oh, come on. Um, but I think you do see how trapped people are in wealth, though, in New Morden as well, because, um, you know, sometimes you've got people who are mortgaged up to the hilt mm. and actually not leading particularly happy lives. They're rich, but mm. but not particularly happy. Um, and so Christian aid, I think, is quite challenging. Yeah. Um, and uh, it can make people quite nervous when you call at the door and, you know, it can take people quite out of their comfort zone, I think. Mm. Well, following on from that, really, um, and I don't want to be too controversial, and it is an amazing sum of money that everybody has, has raised together, um, but there have been criticisms lately of big charities like Christian Aid and the way that they spend the money that they get in. So, you know, it's absolutely fantastic that there are so many volunteers who will give up their time and go out and be brave and face the public and knock on strangers' doors and, and get money. That's great. Um, but what is your response to to criticisms of charities like Christian Aid who pay their empl their members of staff massive massive salaries yeah i mean it, it, it's a bit of a minefield because there's there's challenges on both ends you've got um people being paid huge amounts of money in the top of these charities and i've had friends who've been involved in these charities and been surprised at the figures some of the people mm. um working in there um but then you've also got on the other end of the spectrum charities who aren't paying people living wage mm. uh, and uh so there's there's there is definitely well, often both they're playing their people at the top yeah true you know, that, that's what worries me um, when you get yeah, both together. Yeah, I can remember a specific conversation with someone who had been working in a charity and really struggling mm. uh, with the kind of performance of some of the people that they were working with at the, at the, towards the top end of a charity. And um, 
and they were talking about the salary and i and i'd said well sh- surely though if you want to compete with business and you know get the best people in mm. you have to pay that but uh yeah apparently even with those figures you're not always getting no. the best people in and, and it, it is a it yeah is a, worrying levels of incompetence as well um yeah i i i think it's really important to flag this up because uh i think collecting for christian aid is crucial and these other big charities uh, must be supported, but at the same time, I think there are very serious issues of accountability mm. and reform. And I guess that's the role we can we can play is yep. in you know doing a bit of homework, looking mm. into the charities we support, um, and not necessarily throwing them under the bus, but challenging um, those charities, challenging them to um, to practice what they preach, to to mm. um, pay their, their workers. And the argument they always give is that you pay amount. peanuts, you get monkeys, don't they? So they say you've got to pay high salaries to get people of of quality and ability um doesn't apply to the church do you think that's always true (laughs) especially Uh, with what we were just saying about about spiritual gifting i'm sure that there are a lot of very very capable people who will take a pay cut to work for a for a cause they believe in you'd hope so i think one of the problems is that in some of these large charities a certain culture develops um and uh, sort of rather takes over. So I think the charities that have been established for quite a while face the biggest problems in this regard. And I think that's sometimes why, you know, you see lots of fresh charities starting up because people will sometimes think the only answer is to start Start things afresh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard some attempted uh, ways that charities try to combat this. I know that Youth for Christ, at least in Northern Ireland, but I I think it's the same here. Um, At every level, right from their director all the way down to their... um, standard staff have to raise um half of their salary uh, every year so it's their right. their responsibility and i can see that that then makes things a little bit easier for them on the fundraising but that's also an enormous Takes up amount a lot of their pressure. time though doesn't yeah, it and yeah whether the other uh, uh, the they're getting the most out of their staff that way is a, is a question you know it, mm. but i'm not sure there's a simple answer i yep. think there are people trying yep. uh, different things but i do think to not just um and it's always the you know it's I hope it's not heard in a way that I'm not implying, but it is always a challenge with giving to charity that it's not just a easy thing, a simple thing to kind of solve the conscience, get it out of yep. the way. Put it out. You know, I do think the handing over money is just the start of it and yeah. uh, investigating where we... Well, and it's worse. Charity can be seen as supporting the status quo yeah. and to avoid justice issues. And I think we've got to make sure that we, you know, give to charity, but try to change the structures to... You know, yeah. stop perpetuating the problems that, that cause the need for the charity. I think one of the things we ought to do is pay tribute to Becky Mills, mm-hmm. who is Christian Aid coordinator and does it with huge enthusiasm and oomph and verve. And I think Becky's passion for Christian Aid, and Helen Hancock did it before Becky, um, you know, I think is really quite significant when the Christian Aid Week starts. And she's very good at going up to people and saying, oh, please, you know, do, yeah, do I really collect. liked the video clip she showed. Yeah, she showed that quite good. funny. Yeah. But as uh, you say that, it's one thing to um, knock on a stranger's door and get no. It must be quite yeah. difficult for Becky to go up to people that she's in church with and get no, no, no. Yeah, um, so yeah. hopefully she doesn't get that too much. I know she has from me. Well, she's got a new collector from Anna. Anna's just said she'll collect for Christian Aid I said year. I would consider it. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we were away on holiday this year during <laughs> Christian Aid Week. It wasn't deliberate. <laughs> um, but let's move on now. Uh, speaking of people who are underpaid, uh, we'll move on and talk about teachers. Well, they used to be underpaid. I think they're quite loaded well, now, aren't they? I don't know. It depends <laughs> which ones you ask. No comment. <laughs> so, um, so, Ruth, you have been a teacher for a number of years now. You've also been a Christian for a, n- for a number of years. How do you go about being both at the same time when you're at work? Well, it is a challenge. Um, 
uh, if I just say a bit about my school, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've um, uh, been at my current school for 14 years. Um, oh, and wow. Yeah, this it's is a my, long time. Yeah, my, this, that was my second school. I was five years at my first school. Okay. Um, so now you can work out how old I am. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a boys' prep school, so it's an independent school. So again, I might feel slightly fraudulent, and it's, it is a different job working in a private school mm. to a state school, but it has different challenges. Um, it's a boys' prep school for... Um, boys uh, between the ages of four and 13 reception to year eight um, I started off as a year one teacher and uh, gradually sort of worked my way up through the ranks and now I'm assistant head head of years four to eight uh, which uh, brings its own challenges um, in terms of being a Christian teacher then I think it uh, breaks down into two different categories there's the direct opportunities that I have uh, the school I work in has a Christian foundation okay. so I have lots of freedom to te I teach RS to um, religious studies um, to the boys in reception up to year four right. um, so there's great opportunities for yeah. telling Bible stories mm. talking about Jesus answering their questions they have brilliant questions they really mm. put, <laughs> put me on the spot yeah. um, uh, so I have those, that direct opportunity and also to do assemblies. So I used to do whole school assembly every week, but the school's grown, so we don't all fit in the hall anymore. So now I have to do um, break it into two groups. So I do um, the juniors and then the seniors right. uh, on Wednesday afternoons and Friday mornings. And they're very attentive, aren't they, at your school? They're I mean, I used to come in and do assemblies there, yeah. didn't I? Um, and they were great, just gobbled up everything. Yeah, they were so enthusiastic. Yeah, absolutely. And I tend to serialise stories over a half term or a term. So oh, sometimes... Hanger. I always leave them <laughs> on a cliffhanger. I'm renowned for so it. So it's like Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> or EastEnders. Yes. <laughs> so um, recently at 6.30, we've been um, uh, learning about Esther, haven't we? And mm. that's one that the children really love. That I, Lots of potential for cliffhangers in the mm. story oh, of yeah. Esther. Uh, or sometimes I choose uh, Christian heroes mm. and heroines to talk about. And uh, that's a brilliant opportunity as well. Um, so those are the direct opportunities, but then there are also the just everyday, more indirect opportunities. So I'm really aware of the need to practice what I preach. You know, they, I'm a very visual uh, mm. Christian figure within yeah. the school. Yes. And, you know, teaching about no the Bible. No pressure. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, doing assemblies and everything. And so I really have to show by my love and compassion and being seen to be fair and just and you know all of God's mm. qualities I need to try and reflect in and my presumably actions. That's, that's not just to the boys it's also to other members of staff members isn't of staff it? and the parents as well mm. in yes. working in a private school I guess you can that's the tough the, one the, the parents are with the parents, consumers and yeah. so mm. they feel like they can tell you um, what to do yes. and you have to handle that very sensitively <laughs> and diplomatically <laughs> <laughs> you know if you're paying us you should trust us to know you know roughly yes. what we're doing at least yeah. And, yeah. Mm. but yeah so there's lots of challenges mm. and um Stephen, a, a very long time ago, before, yep. you, before you were a vicar, you were a yep. teacher as well, I you? was, and it's 15 years ago now that I left teaching. And I, I taught for seven years. I was a religious studies teacher and a history teacher uh, and loved it. And I, I went back to my old school, Archbishop Tennyson School in Croydon, Church of England, Comprehensive. Um, and it was fantastic. And there were so many things uh, as a Christian school teacher that really led me on to ordination. Um, you've got a fantastic uh, opportunity through, as Ruth said, assemblers. Um, one of the things I loved doing was taking away kids for the weekend. Mm. So each term I would take different parts of the school down to a Christian Adventure Centre called Halls Green uh, down in, in the Weald in Kent. Uh, and I'd take the sixth formers in the first term and the, the middle school in the second term and the first three years in the third. And the vision of that, and I ran it with a, with a, um, a friend uh, who was also a Christian, was that in a school of about 500 pupils, 600 pupils, to take away 200 kids a year on a Christian weekend was quite a strategic way of trying to influence mm. the uh, the school. And, you know, there was assault courses and 
wide games and that sort of stuff, but also four sessions about what Christianity was all about. And so it was evangelistic, really. But it was it was wonderful. And, um, you know, it was uh, it's great fun being a school teacher, isn't it? I mean, there are lots of pressures, and I think um can be a bit unforgiving. I mean, I think that um, school teachers need our support because I think all the value-added stuff they do, it doesn't seem to me that there's any slack in all the stuff they have to do ever to to make way for that so i think all the extra valuable things school yeah. teachers do have to be totally on top so if, if, if for instance i've got a really tough week and i'm doing a very difficult funeral for instance now as a vicar there'll be other things that i will give less time to because i know that the following week i can pay those things back and when i was in school yeah. teaching i felt there was there was very little of that mm. sort of flexibility mm. so i think our our teachers and particularly christians who are seeking to absolutely throw themselves into the school and really see it as a Christian ministry, need a great deal of support and encouragement um, that and they're doing a, a great job. There is this kind of unhelpful um, way of thinking about teachers that, that, that I think not only people outside of schools, but I think sometimes people in charge of schools and the government can mm. think as well. So, well, they kind of have these huge holidays. Mm. Yeah. So therefore, they squeeze into, and shorter uh, school days. Yeah. Than, uh, so they squeeze you know, a year's worth of work into those months. And, and it's, it's just not a very healthy way to no, it's really. Because really. most of the teachers, teachers I know are sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. They can just about make it to the end of term and then they collapse yeah. and are good mm. for nothing for six weeks until it's time to go back. Yeah. And it can, it, it you know, parents can understandably be worried about their children, but rather take it out on the mm. teacher. Yeah. Um, if there are problems with their kid, they can look for someone to blame and mm. the teacher's, you know, the easy target, aren't they really? Um, so I think it requires a great deal of energy and motivation. And so I think Christians are particularly suitable to being teachers because there's a lot of motivation that can yeah. sort of keep them going. But I think um, there are probably, you know, I think there probably are a disproportionate number of Christians in teaching compared mm -hmm. to other jobs. It yeah, seems to be right. something yeah. that's yeah. Uh, there's quite a compatible. Yeah. But mm -hmm. you also hear quite a lot of. Um, vicars who used to be teachers as well is that well there's a, a lot in common with the job i mean basically the big thing in common from when i was a school teacher to now as a vicar particularly the way i like to try and do it is i think it's largely about seeing people's potential um, the person that god wants them to be mm. and then giving them every single bit of encouragement and help to try and become that person mm. so i'm really grateful for the seven years i spent in teaching because it was so preparatory. I mean, obviously, a really important ministry in its own right, and we need people to stay as teachers, not just go and get ordained like me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a huge amount in common, really. Um, and the great thing about kids as well is they are very moldable. So when you're directing a school play or a musical with kids, they actually do what you say as director. You know, I've directed one play with adults, and it was so much more <laughs> difficult, you know. And um, so kids quite often have a reputation for being difficult and obstreperous. I, I, I think, actually, most children and young people actually are very, very keen to learn. They realise they've got to learn, and actually often they're much, much better at it than adults. I actually had a um, Christian teacher, but it, he had gone the opposite direction. He had been, which I think is a lot rarer, mm. he had been a church leader. He was a Baptist pastor mm. and decided to become a school teacher. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, he trained in teaching and was my A-level RE teacher. Yeah. And um, yeah, he had a huge impact on me yep. growing up. I think that that whole class studying uh, religious education for A-level was the first time I grew up, I guess, with quite a narrow definition of what a Christian was. And uh, it was the first time I was exposed to all sorts of different people from mm. different uh, church backgrounds and uh, different um, 
positions and all sorts of things. And he really skillfully navigated all of the things on the course. Mm. Um, but at absolutely no stage um, had the kind of narrow definition of, well, mm. this person's clearly a Christian, this person isn't. And, and it really opened my um open my eyes to all the whole yeah. range of uh, well, one of the things i love most was teaching religious studies a level i was actually a history teacher my degree was in history uh, but i increasingly taught a lot of biblical studies basically for a level and one of the things i loved at the school is you got loads of really keen young christian teenagers doing a level religious studies and so i saw a quite important part of my job to encourage them to ask really searching questions within hopefully a safe and constructive environment that could really be part of building up their mm. their Christian faith as well as getting their A-levels. <laughs> well, let's move on now and talk about holidays and um, and the value of holidays. Now, Stephen, you've got to keep quiet for now because you know <laughs> nothing about either no, holidays, holidays or their sometimes. value. <laughs> <laughs> you've got two planned this year, though. I have. Do, yes, yeah. to, to everybody's shock. Right, right yeah. <laughs> um, but Ruth, Ruth, you very often take really good holidays. You make proper use of your holidays. I and um, and Nathan and I have just come back from holiday as well. Um, but Ruth, if I come to you first, you, you were on holiday, I think, around the same time as mm. we were. So where, mm. where did you go, first of all? And then what do you think was the value of that holiday for you at this time? Um, well, um, yeah, I have a, a big reputation for going on holiday a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, when I, uh, The last holiday I went on was to Helsinki uh, in Finland. Mm. And um, yeah, it was a great trip. I went with a friend, um, uh, had a really good time sort of, you know, building up our friendship and enjoying each other's company. Um, I find holidays really beneficial because, as we've just been talking about, uh, the life of a Christian school teacher it is really full on in the term times. And mm. I really find... Uh, great uh, opportunity for sort of recreation in mm. the uh, in the holidays. I really find that I can uh, be blessed by God in seeing new wonderful places in His creation, and also blessed in my relationships with the people I go on holiday with, and uh, just really find peace and rest and refreshment, yeah. and really be built up again for the for the next term mm. ahead. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Nathan, what about you? What was the what did you feel was the, the value of going on holiday? Well, yeah, first I mean, of all, where did you go? We went first of all to visit some family in, uh, as you know, <laughs> in uh, in Toronto. Anna's brother lives there in Canada, and uh, also thought we would while we're there, as we don't um, get the chance to travel that far very often, we tried to squeeze quite a lot in. Um, so we went to New York and to Washington as well, and stopped by Niagara Falls. So yeah, there, there was, we squeezed a lot in. So it was a lot less. When I was young, holidays were all about um, resting, and I can see that that as a huge value for a lot of types of holidays. But also, I think for me, the real value was the length of time we were away. We mm. were, um, usually a holiday for us is, you know, getting a week over to Ireland to see some of my family. And it's usually quite busy looking after little cousins and trying to see as many people as possible and uh, things like that. But also when it's a week, you already know what's coming up the week after. I think we were away as long a holiday as I can remember. It was about 18 days and I hadn't had a holiday that long. And in a long time and it was long enough to stop planning the things when I get back you know I mm. um I was able to properly detach um for for a couple of weeks and let my mind even if my body wasn't um resting um rest from the planning the planning of a youth session the planning of a sermon the planning of um meeting up with this person or that person and who you know just getting out of the the routine and it was of huge value you know mm. I feel 
I think Stephen was quite surprised to see me refresh. Well, I was concerned, yeah, because I thought you'd had such a good holiday. I was worried about you not wanting to come back. (laughs) But actually, Anna said at the end of it, she said, um, I said, well, you seem to have come back renewed and refreshed and really up for work. And Anna said, Stephen, that's what holidays are for. (laughs) (laughs) That is the whole point. And um, I, um, you know, I had I had a great time away and I do enjoy holidays, but I'm the sort of person who actually really likes um, structure and routine. And if mm. if I am taken out of it for too long for holidays, I found the long holidays at university uh, quite unsettling, really, which sounds ungrateful because it's brilliant to have such a big chunk of the year off. But without the usual routines and without things that I had to do, um, I really didn't know what to do with myself mm. you know you can you can relax and do nothing for two days maybe and then you start I was to always like having you... to work hard to pay off the <laughs> lifestyle I was having you <laughs> but um but the thing I I really liked about going away we you know they were a very very packed 18 days we we did loads and it was fantastic but um, and we were having a brilliant time but towards the end of it you know, I thought actually it would be really nice to get home and it, it makes you realise, I think when, when you don't get away, when you don't take breaks, um, life can begin to feel a bit monotonous and I like routine, so that's not the worst thing for me. Um, but going away and having space from it can make you realise actually how blessed you really mm-hmm. are and, mm-hmm. and how much you appreciate the yeah. little things, mm-hmm. the everyday things, the people that you see, um, the things that you do, even your own house that you know you see every day and doesn't really seem very special to you. You go away mm-hmm. and all of a sudden a night in your own bed just feels like I know, heaven. it feels luxury. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that's it. And a part of the value of holidays for me is mm. getting away from things and being able being able to process things being able to relax not having to worry about mm. the everyday things but i think also realizing how much you love your life yeah usually but maybe think, i'm I maybe i'm just lucky it's, i know, no, I know I that think, everybody yeah. has at its things best like i think that is though i mean i think there is a definite other side to holidays that that's a real concern sometimes that i see. i seen last year it was i think thomas cook had an advert on tv and uh, it was this family on holiday with a monster. Um, oh, so yeah. there was a big kind of hairy, mm. grumpy, kind of horrible monster that came with them on holiday. Mm. And uh, the kids of the family tried to come over and he'd like shake them off. He was, you know, didn't mm. want to be. But as the holiday progressed, he'd dip into the pool and, you know, the hairs on his arms would fall off. Mm. And then he'd go out for dinner and, you know, his big teeth shrunk down. And, yeah. you know, and by the end, he's their dad. <laughs> and, and the whole thing is... It was a know, horrendous like advert. <laughs> I think they were trying to say, isn't it great? You know, we go on holiday and you get back to... Yeah. And you just go back to become a monster again. And, and this oh, idea yeah. that, that, And that that's not the point the of holidays. The point of a holiday is <laughs> yeah. to, you know, you, you do a job you don't enjoy. Yeah. You live a life that's highly stressed, that you earn loads of money for yeah. things. that, And it's all... The holiday is what it's kind of for. That's the point. Mm. Um, that's where you prove that it's worth it. Yeah. And then holiday becomes a lot of pressure. Yeah. I, I find this with my yep. dad who didn't get to see us as much mm. as he maybe would have liked because he worked really hard to to give us the holidays. But then it, he would, it would take him a little while to enjoy the holiday yeah. because the pressure was so yeah, high. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah. it's cost a lot. We should enjoy this. Yep. You know, yep. don't you too hard. And then if the yeah. weather's bad, mm. it can be a disaster, yeah. can't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, so, yeah. I mean, I think it is something to, yeah. to be I aware that it shouldn't be the payoff. That, yeah. you, know, you know, life is important, not just absolutely. Um, but I think it does it. probably provide the opportunity for people to work on the relationships that are special to mm. them, that perhaps in normal time can be overtaken by functionality. Yeah. So for a family or a couple uh, to go away together, it probably means that rather than concentrating on the stuff that has to be done, 
mm. they get a chance to actually and spiritually focus on you know emotions. actually the, the space from the you know i had siblings that were a, a good bit older than me as well mm. as a younger brother about the same age and um so we had some who were going off rushing off to secondary school i was in primary school dad who was working in the in the day mom who would work evenings often and holiday that kind of us all being in the same timetable at the mm. same place meant that um we didn't often have you know quiet time together in in the rest of the year but mm. every day of holiday we would read the bible together we mm. would pray together and I, it's when I look back on childhood, uh, that's some mm. of my most vivid memories are mm. of those times on holiday, and mm. I really cherish that. And I think that's um, hopefully it, it, it can be more than just when you're on holiday, mm. ideally. But you know, I, I do look back on that as a time that I can remember um, seeing mum and dad express their spirituality in the context of family, and, yep. and it's really precious. Um, yeah. I have to say, I, I find holidays a very spiritual experience. I, mm. I love, you know, having my eyes open to the beauty of God's creation. I had some yeah. really special experiences. I remember uh, being uh, at the top of the Matterhorn mountain mm. in Switzerland mm. and um, we'd gone up in the cable car and whatever and we were standing around looking at the lovely view and suddenly someone was starting to sing in German the words of How Great, that, how great Thou Art. Oh, wow. yeah. You know, when, when I looked down from yeah. that lofty mountain grandeur and then so people from my group started joining in in English yeah. and then some people were singing in French and Italian and other languages <laughs> I didn't recognise. <laughs> Everyone was singing this hymn wow. and it was just amazing. Yeah. You know, we were literally looking down from lofty mountain grandeur yeah. Yeah. and reflecting on how great God is and it was just amazing. Yeah. And then another time in New Zealand, it's probably my favourite ever holiday when I went to New Zealand and uh, we were driving around in a camper van and we arrived at Kaikoura on the South Island in the dark and we found our, our site on the uh, in the camping place and pitched up, you know pitched up and got all sorted but had no idea what the scenery was like and then in the morning when the darkness had cleared we just looked up and there were sort of gorgeous mountains snow-capped mountains mm. one way and then the beautiful turquoise sea in the other <laughs> direction wow. and it was just like you know that the darkness of the world that just cl yeah. clouds our minds and our eyes from the beauty of god and then literally it was just there yeah. for us to look at and mm. things like that I just every holiday there's some moment like that where just think wow god is amazing and his mm. world's amazing and mm. he's entrusted it to us and we get to enjoy it but mm. also look after it and mm. love it and mm. it's just fantastic there's also something quite special about um i would often mom and dad would often make a point if we were away for two weeks on the first um first few days we'd get there they'd try and scout out uh, a local church mm. to go to and mm. and so i've actually managed to you know go to church in in tunisia and in um you know in, mm. in damascus or in all some random places mm. but what you always find is people expressing their faith in quite mm. a different way and mm. I, I that's another thing that really stands out yeah. about my holidays from childhood yeah. is seeing you know christians in another part of the world speaking another language sometimes um mm. sometimes you know four languages in one mm. service and you somehow yeah. muddle on through yeah but uh yeah it's the same with going to church in holland with anna when we were there last time and you know through headsets having a translator at the front yep. sitting and mm. but it, it, there is something that really connects you to the mm. worldwide church when you experience it somewhere else and and also a message i think from my parents that church wasn't something like a lot of the other things in life to escape from i think yeah it can be mm. you know it, it's amazing how often christians on holiday um, well i see it as really vital yeah when we're on holiday that we we go to church as a family um because it's crucial for my kids to see that we go because we're Christians, not just because dad's a vicar. Mm. So yeah. I think particularly for clergy families, I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. you know, it could be seen as the ideal opportunity to have a break, but I, th I think it's just the opposite. And it's really good to go along to places where I sit and abuse as a punter. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of one of the other great things about holidays is that the, the things I like about it, about having space, about getting away, there was actually something quite refreshing about you know not having a, a mobile phone in the same way for yeah. for nearly three weeks yeah not not having people phone you're on facebook a lot though yeah facebook <laughs> and, and, and you know you can communicate with people if you want if you to but to. there's yeah. a, a real to. sense yeah. that you're away and, and people aren't aren't going to bother you unless it's an emergency yeah. Yeah. um which i wouldn't want to live life like that all the time it's nice to be in contact mm. with people regularly but um it was just something about about the space that that had and about about getting away from things and i think that not everybody is able for all sorts of reasons to to just go off on holiday whenever they like. Um, But there are ways to create that kind of space at home. Uh, Mm. There are ways of, um, you know, you could go out for the day and not take your phone with you or, or go out, deliberately go out to somewhere nearby but that you know has beautiful landscape mm-hmm. if you like to connect with God through nature or mm. visit a new city if you if you mm. like to see God in the real busyness of loads of people around you and um, that's something that is totally accessible for absolutely anyone really yeah um, and something that we could yep. all do it's interesting actually on the one of the things I do really enjoy when people go on holiday and they put up pictures on Facebook and it's it's almost like a better way of doing postcards because yeah, it was nice when you were in Canada that you put up pictures of what you were doing and yeah. people were able to like it or to make comments. looks fantastic. And so actually, you know, it's quite nice. People feel they're sharing in a little mm. bit of the holiday. Yeah. Well, I have a friend who's housebound and she always asks me to put lots of photos on yeah. my holiday. And she mm. says, you know, I can't travel anymore, but I love to, to, yeah. to travel the world through your photographs. Yeah. Your photos yeah. always look beautiful as well. Yes. <laughs> One we, of my hobbies, we were looking yeah, at your photos while we were on our holiday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at yours while I was on mine. <laughs> I'm glad you were focused on your holiday. The wonders of Facebook. <laughs> I know we were worried about not being able to be church at three separate services on Sunday. Here we are, yes. different continents all uh, sharing. Well, I think that's all we have time for this month on Look Who's Talking. But do remember that for more information about Christchurch, you can visit our website, um, ccnm.org. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christchurch New Molden. And you can follow us on Twitter at CCNM News. But that's all from us for now. See you next month. (laughs) 